What's up? You're listening to The Long Game, and I'm your host, David Lee Kim, co-founder of Omniscient Digital. In this episode, we chat with Lisa Wallace. Lisa is the co-founder of Assemble, a compensation management platform that helps companies make systematic compensation decisions to attract, motivate, and retain employees while eliminating inequitable pay. Before founding Assemble, Lisa served on the executive team of Abnormal Security, where she was the first business leadership hire. Prior to Abnormal Security, Lisa was the first business hire at Expanse, which was acquired by Palo Alto Networks. In this conversation, we talk about Lisa's roots working on a farm at nine years old and how that has influenced her interest in early stage companies and how she ended up starting a compensation management software company. Lisa shares insights from the compensation world, efforts to reach pay equity, challenges that businesses often face in creating pay transparency, and how all of that ultimately has a positive impact on business efficiency. You can tell that she's deep in the compensation management world and shares a lot of learnings in how forward-thinking companies are approaching this challenge in their businesses. I think you're gonna learn a ton. I did. Here's my conversation with Lisa Wallace. Lisa, welcome to The Long Game. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for making the time. So I, I've done a bit of research and my understanding of your background is you just love the early stage life. You like building things from scratch, being the first like business hire. Um, and you have a very impressive background. And rather than try to give the audience like my interpretation, I'd love to, to hear you share the milestones that led to you becoming founder of Assemble? Like what are the career highlights that might've led you here? Yeah. Yeah. I do like, I really do like early stage. Um, probably that starts with the fact that I grew up on a family farm. <laughs> um, I grew up on a family <laughs> potato farm in Washington state. And so um, I think I got my per- first paycheck when I was nine, which should be illegal unless you're the child of farm owners. Actually, it's a fun fact about us labor law. Um, so I've kind of always been working. Oh, really? Working That's like a loophole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If oh, you're the, I thought that was a joke. Okay. No, no, that's real. Oh, interesting. <laughs> that's actually real. Um, so paid my first taxes and everything at nine. Um, <laughs> and then uh, just worked on the farm, you know, as, as a kid, really loved being part of, um, of a family business, really liked the entrepreneurship kind of side of things. And then it kind of gave me this kind of outsider, uh, maybe insubordinate streak <laughs> that ca- I carried with me to, to Stanford and undergrad. Um, really got interested in the technical side of various aspects of, um, of business. So uh, in particular, my first kind of like love and strong interest was cybersecurity. I was really fascinated by it. I worked, uh, interned in Israel doing um, VC for um, cybersecurity investments and then went, went to work at Palantir and eventually ended up joining um, a DARPA project actually. So DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It was called Cadium at the time, and it was some grad students that I was friends with and studied with in, in undergrad um, that had started it. And so originally when I joined the private sector, what I was focused on was like bidding on DARPA projects and then trying to get these sort of proofs of concept off the ground with DARPA. Um, and about a year into that, we decided, you know, I think you can commercialize some of this technology. Let's go out and raise VC. So I was really kind of there from the beginning pre-revenue, pre-non-DARPA grant revenue 
um, at KDM, which eventually became Expanse. We ended up you know, taking that product to market. About half of our uh, business came from um, commercial and half of it came from government. And then uh, that company sold to Palo Alto Networks for about a billion dollars a couple of years ago. Um, and then after that, uh, just really wanted to go back to, I actually left before they exited, just really wanted to go back to a super early stage again. I really like that problem space. I think it's fun to um, have an idea about how you can like add value in the world and then try to figure out the shape and form of that, both from a go-to-market perspective and a product perspective. So I went to um, a company called Abnormal Security Pre-Revenue, which is a machine learning email security product. Um, a lot of different kind of interesting lessons learned there. But actually, prior to having gone to Abnormal, um, I had the idea for Assemble. So my co-founder and I met each other at Expanse. Um, he was kind of the first finance hire, really, um, and ended up building out HR and compensation. I was a first-time hiring manager trying to hire a bunch of difficult-to-price roles. Um, and we both kind of experienced the pain of compensation and just any kind of workforce process um, together for the first time. <laughs> it was like my first job out of undergrad and his first job at, like, actually in operations after private equity. And I think both of us were just like, I cannot believe how inefficient this is. This is amazing. So that was kind of our first foray into realizing that um, that Assemble was a good idea. And I can, I can speak more to that and, and go from there if that would be helpful. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like there's been hundreds of thousands, millions of businesses, and yet no one's really figured out this compensation thing, which is part of every business. Um, yeah, so you were Sorry. doing, you were doing projects for DARPA, like defense yeah. security. Yeah. <laughs> How did you end up switching to comp management? Like when I look at most people's backgrounds, like when they're in defense, they're like staying in defense for yeah. like, their well, career, I love right? That. So it's a little bit different way. here. Yeah, I, I love security and defense. I would gladly go back. Um, but I also love compensation. Actually, one of my theses and or my college thesis in undergrad was actually on human capital management in like secure organizations. So I've kind of always been fascinated by this like idea of like how do teams come together, become efficient, get motivated, uh, retain, and then accomplish goals and do that in an efficient way. Um, so that was kind of like <laughs> a flavor of my interest for a long time. And then uh, when we were at Expanse, basically what Expanse was was. Um, an attack surface reduction product. So um, what we would do is find infrastructure on the internet and then um, help businesses or government agencies reduce that those exposures um, on the public internet that were kind of um, incorrectly or accidentally exposed. And uh, I would, we would go to these Fortune 500 companies, which is who we were selling to, these really large organizations, and say, you know, we've... <laughs> handled the server-side exposures at your org, now let's focus on client-side exposures. And every time I talked to a CISO or a CIO about that, that a CISO would be a, a chief information security officer, yeah. they'd be like, oh, we, can't, we actually can't um, focus on client-side devices because we don't even know who works here. We have to check the payroll to figure out who works here. And I remember just being like, what? oh my God, <laughs> how is this possible? Like, I get, I get that it expands like, on a micro level, we have a hard time managing like workforce and compensation and things like this. But how, as a really large organization, can you not even figure out who at a business works there, much less like whether you're paying them effectively, whether you have unknown churn, et cetera. Like, this is your most important investment as a business. It's your biggest bottom line um, issue. It's like critical to downstream workflows, like dynamic planning or anything like from a finance perspective. And no one seemed to have a hold on it. And then to make matters worse, 
the CISO and CIO suite, if they couldn't find a tool to manage compensation or workforce, which they never could, um, for the CHRO, they were the org responsible for building and maintaining an internal tool on top of this. And we really started to realize, like, this is a big issue when 100% of the time, every CISO or CIO we talked to was building and maintaining an internal tool for workforce. Um, and like, this isn't just like a chill t- tool. It's like highly collaborative. Um, there's a lot of dynamic things going on anytime you're trying to make workforce operations at large. Um, and then also there's really sensitive PII data that's governed by a lot of compliance regulation. If you're a public company, you have Sarbanes-Oxley and things like that that govern compensation. You have G- GDPR and CCPA covering PII information. Like literally no one wants to touch it. It's this really high leverage thing and it unlocks a lot of you know, strategic work. And so we were like, how is it that these large organizations that don't have software margins, by the way, these are like 4% margin companies or less, um, all of which <laughs> their bottom line is entirely driven by, you know, the fully loaded cost of employees and then other things that are sort of attached or derivative of that. Um, how are they incapable or unable to build a workforce platform? So we kind of started with that. And then we went into, okay, well, what what's missing here from even getting started solving this problem? And like one thing that's like clearly missing is that um, there's really no way um, in existing systems of record for HR to um, track your workforce plan. Like what are you even trying to do <laughs> in a global way? So usually you would see like job architecture or comp- compensation bans or things like this be produced by Um, consulting organizations for various business Mm -hmm. models. They're almost always tracked in spreadsheets, even for the largest companies. And they just like live somewhere in isolation. (laughs) And any business leader, I'm sure you've experienced this, David, like that goes through an annual planning process. You have spreadsheets too, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you have have spreadsheets. You guys all come together like once a year, decide what the plan is, and then you like build a plan, and then you save it in a folder, and then no one ever looks at it or measures it again. You know, like this is like a repeated process yeah. that everybody's experienced. And so it's like, you know, well, that's clearly like one main problem is that these plans are like kind of decided on, maybe looked at, sort of referenced, and then no one actually ever uses them. Um, mm-hmm. And if you look at traditional HR systems, um, there isn't a very clear data model. It's usually tied to the employee record. And like, what is the employee record? Well, it's the actual true employee population that you have, not the employee population that you want or are trying to achieve. And so it's very difficult to do any kind of instrumentation on that. And then the the kind of the other missing piece was, if you think about when all of these HR systems were built, like 20 years ago, um, HR was just not a visible function. And you're you're talking about like the work days and stuff. Like the work days of the world or worse, like Oracle or SAP. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, They weren't... um, they weren't built in a world where HR was a visible function, where it was like a C-suite function, a board visible thing. I mean, a lot of these HR systems got started before um, like the Enron crisis, which created Sarbanes-Oxley and started Mm -hmm. the regulation of compensation and executive comp in particular. Um, And just not when you had this world of HRBPs interacting and acting as real business owners with managers, things like that. And so it's kind of built as this sort of back office storage of data Um, And now if you think about the way that organizations run, it is this highly visible, highly collaborative, highly interactive thing. If you're trying to hire an employee, change someone's comp, give them a promotion, check pay equity, communicate to your your team that you have pay equity. So you need this sort of secure scoped access control layer that can enable cross-functional workflows while allowing HR to retain central control. And if you have those two things, you can enable a lot of value. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. Like during my time at HubSpot, I definitely saw the people ops role become a really critical role that people are hiring. Like there's a lot of like job descriptions or job listings and like uh, clout around the head of people ops or yeah. chief people officer now. So is that the type of person that you're typically selling to for, for assemble? No. So usually we're selling either um, in the enterprise, like large organizations, we're selling to the head of total rewards or head of compensation, mm-hmm. which is the kind of like compensation subfunction under HR. Um, but in a smaller organization, we'd probably be selling directly to the BP people. We wouldn't want to sell to the, like people ops, but um, that is actually kind of what makes it similar to cyber. We're like, if you're selling mm-hmm. to cyber, usually there's like a 0% unemployment rate. Everybody's overworked. Um, you have all these new types of roles no one knows how to do and a lot of not like no internal knowledge or content that helps people figure out how to do their jobs in compensation it's very similar like the way the pace of everything is changing really quickly people now have to have comp strategies that are global the compliance requirements of various state-by-state pay transparency laws are kind of out of control it's just not in the average hr uh, leader's core competency and how could it be because it's so complicated and growing so quickly and so there's a really good opportunity i think for uh people leaders to really leverage better tooling and content in order to figure out how to build effective strategies yeah so you've laid out the problem uh and it sounds like a huge problem that i'm sure a lot of I mean, when I look at the website, I'm like, yep, only sells to Fortune 500. I wonder if there's a solution for smaller businesses. But tell us what, how Assemble solves for this problem. So we do actually sell to uh, smaller businesses. I would say we sell to like mid, mid-market to small enterprise up to enterprise. Mm-hmm. So um, usually it becomes more valuable if you've got like 300 to 500 employees plus because you have a collection of managers, a collection of recruiters, et cetera, that everyone's trying to enable. So the way that we solve this problem is um, we have um, foundations, which every customer has to buy um, because everything's built on top of that, which is kind of like that, what is your workforce plan thing? So you can store your comp bands, um, job architecture, uh, job descriptions, uh, things like that all in one place. So we're kind of the system of, if we're a system of record for anything, it's that workforce plan. And then we pull in data from every other uh, tool that you'd use to track anything workforce related, whether that's performance, cap table, or stock management system, um, HR system, ATS, et cetera. So once you have kind of like a complete picture of your employee population and then, you know, your, your like foundational plan truly tracked in, um, in Assemble, then you can start to do some really powerful things. The first thing that you can do is like literally measure where your uh, your plan deviates from your employee population. So that would be things like pay equity and DE&I, workforce statistics, things like that, that help you have a sense for, um, <laughs> is are the decisions being made at my company being made consistently with uh, what I want? So that's one thing. The second thing would be, um, you know, now that I need to comply with things like pay transparency laws, and I'm trying to, you know, improve retention and uh, hire rates, how am I effectively communicating across the org in both a persuasive and compliant way? So that would be like an employee portal that allows you to log in if you're an employee and see what your comp looks like and comp history. Um, it would also allow managers to do the same and then also um, allows companies to have kind of a medium for uh, compliance so that they can share with either candidates, employees, managers, whatever, uh, just the appropriate comp band, um, which you know is required by a lot of different states now. 
um, and things like that. And then uh, the other kind of component that we have in the product would be um, the ability to actually run a comp planning cycle, so conduct um, compensation changes and things like that. So as you're telling me all this, it makes sense. I think before I found out about Assemble, this is not something that I knew existed. Even when I was working at a larger company, like it was really the status quo that you're talking about, like spreadsheets or using Workday and I don't know how Mm -hmm. else they were managing these plans. Do people realize this is like a problem that can be solved or do you find that most people are still used to like the status quo? Like how do you get them bought in? Like, hey, this is a new way of doing things versus your spreadsheets. And the reason I asked this is when I was at HubSpot, we were selling a CRM. Turns out most of the people that should be using our product were just on spreadsheets. Like competition yeah. was not other software. It was the status yeah. quo of like spreadsheets and post-it notes. So yeah. how how difficult or maybe it's pretty easy, but how are you finding it when you would pitch this product to folks? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, and I think we experienced it a lot at Abnormal Security too. So what Abnormal was, was it, we weren't really creating a category. It was, um, it was email security. So um, basically, traditional email security is a secure email gateway, which is like a appliance that you put in front of your, uh, in front of your email. And what it basically does is um, try to detect attacks that have been seen before. So, like, try to detect bad links, malware, et cetera. Um, and so it's, there's no advanced machine learning, nothing like that, because the attacks in general are not novel. You just w- don't want to be patient zero for a virus. And if you're not patient zero, the secure email gateway will catch it. What happened was there were, incre- were kind of like two things. There was an increasing number of attacks that were business email compromise in flavor, meaning they weren't a payload, uh, payload-based attack. So it wasn't virus. It wasn't malware. It wasn't anything like that. It was like invoice fraud. I'm going to have this fake invoice. I'm going to try to convince you to change your banking information. And these are like incredibly expensive. It's like the number one cyber crime. They're like super, super um, valuable to catch. But you can't uh, you can't actually do this like have I been seen before pattern matching thing because each email is actually novel. You're basically just trying to social engineer people into giving you money or like changing your bank account and Basically, it's super effective, but there's no way to solve it with a traditional email gateway if the way that um, the email gateways work is by trying to catch emails, known bad emails that have been seen before. And so machine learning models are really effective for this um, because they can kind of target, use natural language processing, identify that something's a little funky, realize that like, you know, your vendor that, you know, cleans your offices in Ohio probably doesn't have a bank account in Macau, like things like that, that are just like, this doesn't make sense, Um, but it's all novel. And then the other thing that they did was basically have an API-based integration into cloud-based email. So basically email gateways were built for on-prem world and then cloud email was built differently. And if you try to put a secure email gateway in front of cloud email, it actually neuters some of the cloud email functionality. And so um, there was kind of like two different things that Abnormal did a lot better. But not everybody was bought into it, right? Like literally yep. not everybody was bought into it, especially in the first couple of years where we went to market. And we thought, oh, you know, this is going to be so obvious. We're not creating a category. They're already having um, huge issues with email. There's this clear ROI. But not everybody was like fully convinced. And a lot of people said, I want you to come back when you have like the full platform built out. You've got malware. You've got invoice fraud. You've got everything you say you have, plus all my traditional providers, even if they're becoming duplicative with Microsoft and Google. And I think my reaction to that is what we see at Assemble, too, which is basically like, 
Um, there are a huge number of people that are still operating in spreadsheets, even companies that you think um, shouldn't be. Like you mentioned HubSpot. Like I, I don't I don't know anything about HubSpot's um, compensation, but there are a lot of num- companies that are operating in spreadsheets, and not all of them are like fully aware that a system should exist. But they will get there eventually. This is just kind of like a chasm thing where you have early adopters and then later stage adopters. The best way I can think to describe what Assemble is doing for workforce or trying to do for workforce is you had ERP systems in the early 2000s, but you didn't have any system engagement for moving leads down the funnel, for managing cross-functional communication and top-line revenue with sales, marketing, et cetera, whomever else might be operating and then came Salesforce and eventually everybody kind of moved to this sort of idea where you had an ERP and then you have a system of engagement. I think the same thing is going to happen for workforce related operations at a business where you have, um, you have an, like your ERP, which is your HRIS that does kind of payroll becoming very commoditized, things like that. And then you layer mm-hmm. on a, a system of engagement for workforce operations. So we we're not really like an analytics BI tool. We're not really like a system of record. We're more like a system of engagement. Got it. And I guess when you say that, you know, some of these are new phrases to me. So I'm wondering, like, what does your go-to-market look like in educating these these prospects that there's this new way? How do you think about like getting them using this verbiage and getting more familiar with the fact that like there is this layer of system of engagement for workforce operations? Because that that seems like a new new-ish thing that you're yeah. you're doing. Well, that's not the product marketing that I go to market with. Um, that's probably what I would tell. <laughs> that's probably what I would tell like a business operator or a VC. I mean, that's like the truth of what we're building. But I would say like um, what we would go to market with is a lot more uh, direct in terms of what it is we do today and in the like immediate near future, which would be much more compensation related. Um, so that's one thing. Um, as far as like our go to market, um, we have a direct sales model. Um, where we have some outbound, a lot more inbound than I ever experienced in cybersecurity, actually. Um, I think oh. there are a lot of people really Googling around for uh, solutions like this, particularly in light of pay transparency laws. Um, and then we do we have noticed that there is a lot of value to content. So uh, like webinars, gated assets, things like this. And I think it's because people are looking for tools. <laughs> They're overworked and they want to get started somewhere. And um, it's easy to get started with content that's available online. Yeah, got it. And you've you've been working on Assemble for a couple of years now, uh, mm-hmm. and there's this I don't know if it's a change or a shift, but like this shift to more pay transparency. And I saw that Assemble's blog has a couple articles about that and the, the various states that are implementing yeah. these compliance laws now. Like, what hot takes do you have about this whole space? Like. Anything, like any new opinions that you've developed or things that you've learned about the industry? Um, With respect to pay transparency in particular? Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, Okay, so I mean, I think pay transparency is interesting. We kind of expected it to be a lot more of a driver of demand this year than, um, than it has been. And I think the reason that it hasn't is because it's coincided with this downturn where a lot fewer people are actually hiring. And so um, there's more of a focus on minimal compliance or just people not being compliant at all, just so they've got bigger problems. Yeah. <laughs> I think that um, my, I don't know if they're hot takes, but my, my like strong weekly held opinions are that pay transparency isn't going away. <laughs> every state is going to have some flavor of this um, in every country. So you have the EU already. There are several provinces in Canada. 
I was just learning about like South Africa that has pay transparency laws. Like there are pay transparency laws everywhere. Um, so that's certainly something that I think companies are going to need to manage and first pay transparency and then it's like paid data reporting. So there is, you know, there is some overhead there. Um, but then I think the second view that I have is that similar to compensation, like in order to get people really on board with pay transparency, you need to convince them that it's not like synonymous with now you have to show everybody every band and be like fully transparent. Pay transparency is like this continuum where you could either start with minimal compliance um, or you could be fully transparent. And most companies kind of fall in the middle and it really depends on their culture, the maturity of their programs, et cetera. And so having a partner to kind of help sort through that is really what I think we mean when we say pay transparency. We're still trying to figure out like what the right marketing language is there. Yeah. Maybe in tactical terms, like you mentioned that spectrum of like minimal compliance and then like full transparency. What are examples of those that maybe you've seen that you can share? Yeah. So minimal compliance would be like, I'm just going to only put job descriptions with pay ranges in the state of California. Cause it's the only state I operate in where like mm-hmm. that's required and I'm not going to put it in any other state and I'm not going to tell any employee except for those based in California what their pay range is. And I'm only going to do it upon request. Like that would be an example where like the law in California oh. basically says like you have to post pay ranges and job uh, ranges and you have to make the pay range available to employees. You can do it only if they ask and they have to know mm-hmm. the law exists to ask. Right. So like that would yeah. be minimally compliant. And then like, to hell with my employees in like Texas or whatever, because there's no law there yet. <laughs> I would say most companies don't do that though. Like if they're, yeah, if, I they're hope, required I hope to, <laughs> if they're required to do like any kind of pay transparency, most of them are thinking through like, okay, and this is true, even if it isn't driving demand that's pay transparency related right now, it is true among our customers and prospects, which is that they know that like at least at sometime in 2024, they want to be in a place where they have comp program maturity that would enable them to selectively make decisions without a huge, huge organizational cost around what they're going to expose to not. So it would be some kind of like mm-hmm. middle ground, like I'm going to make, I'm just going to start putting pay ranges on every single job description that I uh, put out, or um, I'm going to start giving employees self-service access to compensation bands, or I'm going to give employees mm-hmm. access to the entire organization's comp bands without giving them access to every, what everybody makes things like that. Got it. That makes sense. And so you started talking about those different examples of how other companies have done it. And you also mentioned that your thesis was on like human resource management. Is that right? Well, it was, yeah, go ahead. It was um, actually in security studies. So I focused on like different, um, like privileged access groups in Israel and the United States. And I looked at human capital management. So it's just kind of funny that I always had this interest. Yeah. 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 How, I mean, I'm not sure if this is related, so let me know if it's not, but like, how has that work maybe influenced how you're building assemble as a company, like in terms of how you think about like building out the team and these, uh, like workforce management and human capital management. Yeah. So I I think I've always been like very systems oriented. Um, (laughs) so like the idea of building a workforce as a system itself and like, that's interesting to me and then figuring out how to like optimize it. And I think that that's my co-founder Enrique and I think very similarly. And I think when we, um, when we were at expanse and experienced the issues related to compensation, um, and then also saw what was happening at large organizations we were interacting with, 
and then um, we're both like underrepresented in tech. So I'm female and, mm -hmm. uh, and Enrique is a Venezuelan immigrant. I think we had seen directly or heard about a lot of pay inequity issues. Um, and our immediate <laughs> thought was like, what's the root cause? Like, what is the systemic problem here? And I think the systemic problem here is that a lot of businesses are just not in a position to um, make sure that they're truly systematic with compensation decisions. And in order to solve that problem, you really need to go back to the foundational, um, you know, question of like what you're trying to build, which is a workforce plan, you know, that your population is consistent with and then train managers and decision makers across the business to make decisions that are consistent with that plan and then kind of informed real time by pro proactive like analytics, which is really, really hard to implement. So I think in terms of like where we kind of think about things. I think that was like an immediate, um, an immediate thing where like, um, we're both kind of obsessed with inefficiency at organizations. We're both business mm -hmm. owners ourselves. Another kind of hot take that I have about uh, pay equity is that I, I really don't think it's a zero sum game with business efficiency. I think there's like a really, really strong argument for businesses to make more money, get less sued, <laughs> have a more attract, like motivated and retained workforce and also achieve pay equity. It's like the exact same business processes. It's not one or the other, but so many people are resistant to this idea. I think um, they, hmm. they think it's like, you know, pay equity is going to come with all these sacrifices around um, efficiency or manager discretion, et cetera. And I just don't believe that that's true. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Um, like, how it's not actually at odds with business efficiency. How do you typically speak to that when you get challenged on that question or that yeah. point? I can talk at length. <laughs> so <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> one thing with, with pay and equity is like, okay, well, what, what is that? Either you have, you have a person that's being paid less than others, um, or you have a person who's perceiving, like perceived to be, or that they're perceiving themselves that they're being paid less than others. And actually both are bad. Like you, you don't want mm -hmm. either one, right? Because they're gonna create um, a demotivated workforce. It's gonna increase litigation risk. It's probably gonna create this sort of unnecessary churn. And it could create a situation too, where your organization could come under hot water for um, not supporting you know, women and minorities or whomever it is that you might be discriminating against. So that's obviously a huge issue, um, whether it's the perception or it's the reality. And how you would fix that is by being really clear prior to hiring anyone about what your willingness to pay is for that person and then how you're going to like move talent through the organization based on various criteria, whether it's tenure or it's performance. Companies can kind of decide that for themselves or some combination of both. Um, and if you put all those systems in place and you have a, a well-informed decision process for how you're going to make uh, employee compensation decisions and you can explain and communicate that to employees particularly to those that might be more likely to believe that they're underpaid, you actually enable a lot of really interesting business efficiencies too. Like, so the exact same thing that you would do to like make sure that women and men are paid fairly across your organization, you could use, you could use those analytics to, I don't know, track regrettable churn and identify whether your pay ranges were wrong. You could understand the fully loaded cost of employees in different cities and then identify whether you're going to expand in one city versus another. You could look at growth and have a sense for, okay, if we grow this much, this is how much our bottom line is going to grow, or this is how much we're having this sort of bottom line creep relative to top line efficiency. I mean, that's something that we saw over the last four or five years where 
really large businesses, the, thinking like the Facebooks, the Stripes, et cetera, of the world. Yes, they were growing top line, but they were also really, really inefficient with the bottom line. And the bottom line mm-hmm. didn't actually even track with the top line. Well, you would be able to get a hold of that doing the exact same things, same instrumentation, same programs, same, et cetera, that you would be doing for pay equity. Yeah. It's like, if I'm interpreting this correctly or understanding it correctly, it's like by nature of having these tools in place and everyone knowing what the salary bands are and even employees being aware of what their salary bands are, it provides the tools to have these conversations about comp and also do their correct planning. Cause everyone's going to see like, Hey, if we give these 20 employees comp increases to the next level and they get this much within their salary band, we're going to be at this bottom line rev like profit and that we can't afford that type of thing versus like, and avoid maybe what we've seen in the past. Yeah. I mean, it's like a budgeting activity in addition to the fact that like, there's just like a clear benefit to, um, to your business, not having any actual or perceived pay and equity issues. You don't have uh, people quitting. You don't have angry glass door reviews. You don't have a bad employer brand. Um, you can anticipate regrettable churn from high performing women and minorities in particular. Um, you know, like there's a whole bunch of really positive benefits to, um, some upfront work, but things that really become efficient over time, especially if you have a system like assemble in place. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can relate to that. I mean, there was a point at a previous role I had where my coworkers and I were pretty transparent about how much we were getting paid and mm-hmm. we both shared we were getting paid. And when I shared what I was getting, both of us were like, wait, you're getting paid less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, I need to talk. I'm going to talk to someone about this. Cause if it, like even my coworkers like, yeah, you're doing more work than me. You should be getting paid more yes. and spoke to my VP about it. And it was a very uncomfortable conversation, but he eventually communicated why I disagreed why, but if those things were communicated up front, probably could have avoided that situation. And I, I was aware of many other conversations folks were having, cause I mean, everyone talks about this stuff. So it's, yeah. it's also like proactive as well. Yeah. Increasingly. But I mean that, that in that situation, that company was in a better position than, than most. Cause a lot of times it's just mm. not explainable. <laughs> like you don't yeah. have the documentation, you don't have like, clear or well understood reasoning behind various pay ranges. You don't have um, like the systems in place to allow managers in particular line level, you know, younger managers to have productive conversations with employees about career progression. And so, uh, you know, everybody says that um, the reason people quit jobs is because of other random things. Like uh, I quit jobs because of bad manager. I quit job because of whatever. I actually really believe that like 90% of the reason people quit jobs is because of comp. Like it's because someone is like not communicating an employee's value or explaining what could happen over the course of that employee's tenure at the business that was effectively motivating. And a lot of that comes Mm -hmm. down to the brass tacks of just compensation and then things related to compensation. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, if someone were paid enough, they'd probably deal with a bad manager. Um, if they had a bad manager and they weren't paid enough, then more likely to quit. Or like what makes a bad manager? Like, can you communicate not even that, you know, you're paid more, but that you're just paid fairly and it's mm-hmm. market competitive and you believe you have a belief that your manager is, you know, your advocate or at least making decisions that are fair and consistent with how they're treating other people. I mean, that is a big, <laughs> that goes a long way, regardless of whether you feel you're actually paid as much as you should be or could be to ensuring that you're retained and at least not, you know, feeling marginalized. Yeah. 
I know you mentioned you and Enrique come from underrepresented backgrounds, like you're a woman, he a Venezuelan immigrant. Yeah. Um, have y'all experienced any of this stuff like firsthand? Like, because a part of me wonders, work for like compensation management isn't the sexiest SaaS industry, yeah. at least like not off the top of my head, but you seem very passionate and like excited about it. So I'm curious, like what's driving that? Like, did you have a personal experience where you're like, oh, I got to fix this thing or like what, what, what's behind, what's the story behind all of this? I mean, maybe nothing that I particularly feel like comfortable talking about, but I would say mm -hmm. that I have witnessed enough things or have been secondhand like party to uh, things that friends and contacts of mine have, have witnessed. And Enrique would say the same thing that make us very convinced that a lot of pay inequity exists all over the place, even if it's not effectively measured. It's just very difficult to be systematic, even if you have the best of intentions and you're the one running the process. If you have any decision-making authority delegated to other people, I mean, just things happen. It's really hard to bring a company together and, and make sure that you're making comp decisions that are fair in real time, over time, that I am very convinced that unconscious bias exists, conscious bias exists, um, and that there are lots of bad comp decisions out there getting made. Then the question becomes like, okay, well, how do you solve that problem? And I think the fastest, quickest way to solve this problem is to give companies the tools to proactively identify inequities in real time, I think that comes in the form of something like Assemble. Yeah. Yeah. This makes me think about a hot take I've had that I don't share very often, but there's a lot of data or surveys that have shown that the wage gap has been closing between women and men. Yeah. I'm a little skeptical of that data, partially yeah. because it's like dependent on who's being surveyed and whether they want to share the data. And it's more of like a concern, like is the data misleading where Maybe there's inequities happening that are not being captured by the data. Um, I'm not sure if you have any takes on that. This is more of me throwing something out there. Yeah. Um, but that that's one of the concerns. Like, I wonder if that data is accurate or not, because as we have discussed here, most people aren't even tracking or like have a system of record for these things. So how do we know if it's reliable? Yeah, um, I agree. <laughs> I well, I, I'll, I'll tell you two things. Like, number one, I do think it's better than it's ever been. And I do mm -hmm. think that the wage gap has been closing um, and that that is like hugely valuable to um, employees all over the place. <laughs> like it's even the last hundred years, people forget like how groundbreaking so many different labor laws yeah. in the United States have been for employees. And even, you know, in the face of seeing things like discrimination or bias or whatever today, I think it's easy to forget that there has been so much unbelievable progress. Um, that, you know, this is the best that it's ever been. So my, my like strong opinion here is that like, I do think that the wage gap is closing based on how it how it's measured. And I think it's the best it's ever been. And I think mm -hmm. employees and women and minorities, uh, especially have more resources and rights and power than they've ever had to close some of these gaps. And also their numbers are getting stronger, right? The, the workforce is becoming more diverse than ever. And so it's very difficult for businesses to ignore this issue when an increasing percentage of their workforce are female, are minorities, are younger employees, et cetera. So that's one thing. But then the question is like, is the wage gap how it's traditionally defined the whole ball game? And that's where I started to disagree. Mm. So like uh, one example would be, um, we talked to this customer there's a prospect uh, early on that's like a very um, like greenwashed brand, I would say. It's like a very positive, like social good brand okay. um, yeah. that, you know, everyone would have heard of. And um, 
they were like, yeah, you know, I came in as the, the chief people officer a couple months ago. Everybody said we had perfect pay equity. We, you know, all women and men within band were paid the same. But then we did an analysis on uh, age and we found that the average male director was 27 and the average female director was like 46. <laughs> I was like, okay, oh. well, that's where, you know, the, the wage gap might be the same. But then you think about like time in band, promotion rates, <laughs> things like this that would make that actually truly contribute to um, women's lifetime earnings over time and also like effectively attracting and retaining and moving talent up the chain over time too. And you realize you have this gigantic problem. And it's the, I think the reason why people don't focus on it is because it's harder to actually pull this data out of like BLS data, but also because um, it's a really nuanced answer. It's like, okay, well, how do you solve this problem? Well, you have to, first of all, measure it, which I think is very hard unless you have something like Assemble where you have your workforce plan and a software solution, and then you have real-time statistics. So like, mm -hmm. that's really hard um, to even measure, but then, the solving part of it is also hard because what you want to do is make sure that you have clear uh, job expectations for each role and you're making sure that you're kind of moving people up uh, the job, the job ladder. And I think performance management and retention can be difficult. So they probably had just bled, um, just bled women or uh, there were people in the workforce that maybe they weren't considering because of years of experience or whatever, or maybe um, childbearing years took some women out of the workforce, but that wouldn't account mm -hmm. for like a decade gap. You know what I mean? So like that part is like a little funky. And so I think my, my, my reaction to the wage gap is just like, yeah, I bet it's closing, <laughs> but does that actually solve um, the problem that women don't feel like they're getting a fair shake at various organizations or name any kind of subgroup with some sort of, um, you know, factor at any place, do they feel, and is it true or not, that they're being um, given the same promotion opportunities, et cetera, finding them in the same places. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that additional nuance of like the roles and time and role and promotion cycles either. So how does yeah, that, how do you that. even start to have that conversation if that, that data is hard to, to track and pull? Well, that's kind of the point. It's just like, you yeah. know, if you want to do anything, if you want to comply with pay transparency laws, if you want to uh, track, promotion rates, if you want to identify manager issues, um, if you want to make sure that you're retaining your best talent over a decade, you can't do any of that unless you have the right instrumentation. It's like asking like, well, I can't figure out if my users are using this feature. And it's like, well, you haven't instrumented your app yet. So like, I don't know what to yeah. tell you. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. That makes sense. So um, I'd love to hear maybe some if there's a story that comes to mind about I'm sure like building software in this industry where like it's very sensitive, it's very complex. We'd love to hear about like some big challenges that you've overcome in building this business so far. Like any stories come to mind about like a big thing you had to overcome or you and Enrique had to overcome to, to take assemble to where it is today. Um, I can't think of any particularly large stories, but I will say, like, I think the things that we've both realized is um, if you start with the wrong, like, initial customers, you build the wrong product for this market. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one thing, and I can unpack what, what I mean by that. And then uh, the other one is that it's just like an extremely high surface area product. And so kind of core to... Um, 
core to our like strong opinions about how to build this business, et cetera, we started with that foundational layer of like, okay, how can you actually model a workforce plan and how can you securely share information across an organization? Um, so that's what we started with, which I feel really good about, <laughs> even if like uh, it was a lot of R&D up front. Um, and then start layering in, you know, additional analytics or uh, workflow tools on top of that. But what I would say to that is like, you know, you go to companies and some companies are going to want the all in one thing. They're going to want, you know, mm-hmm. every possible workforce operation that you could think of before they're willing to buy. Those are just not your early customers. And I think had I not come from abnormal uh, security where we had to sell a point solution until we could sell an increasingly large amount of the product and then the rip and replace you know, narrative for an API-based email gateway versus a secure email gateway was like four or five years into the company's life. Before that, Mm -hmm. it was just a point solution for early adopters on top of a secure email gateway. I think before, if I had not experienced that, I would have been more nervous about it. But I think what we've tried to focus on is just like, can we sell on pain for the point solutions that we have today built on top of what is a larger platform play? And we're going to grow slower because we're going to build enterprise-grade data models, security and access control, et cetera, into the product from the beginning. That's how we built the product. Um, but it's a crazy amount of surface area, so much. Um, so that's one challenge that we've dealt with. Um, and then what was the other one that I was talking about? Starting with the wrong customer? Oh, yeah, starting with the wrong customer. I think this is like a really bad pitfall because a lot of compensation solutions um, that have been built have started with building for either an HR generalist without like a VP of people in place or even just like the founder or business owner. And that's an SMB solution, which doesn't handle the crux of like later issues. So if you're like an SMB product and you're trying to figure out like, how do I manage compensation for 25 people? That is a very different job to be done. (laughs) Like you are just trying to get really good market data. You're trying to get it for free and you're trying to make one-off decisions. And maybe you have a pay cycle or whatever that you're trying to do. That's very, very different than like you're a 500 person company or a 5,000 person company. You've got multiple PNLs, a suite of managers. Um, You need to like enable 100 recruiters, not 100, a 500 person company, but you see my point. Um, (laughs) You need to enable a ton of recruiters. You have to um, answer to um, like a board of directors and you've got like three different sub teams in HR. Like that is a workflow problem, you know, almost initially much more than it is like a, do I have the right answer to make this one off decision? And so I think what we've realized is like uh, getting really tight on ICP for this market especially, especially if what we were going to do is go for um, companies that are uh, early adopters of a solution like this. So care about pay equity, high degree of knowledge workers based in California, like a lot of that is tech, right? Like, or, you know, healthcare or biotech or whatever. Um, It's easy to take on smaller customers, but I think the problem with that is you end up building the wrong product. Yeah. How did that play out for y'all? It sounds like you might've made that mistake. Did you have to kind of turn out those initial customers and then move no, market? No, we didn't or? really make that mistake. Um, okay. <laughs> we do have smaller customers, but we uh, what we did was, from the very beginning, build a design partnership for the product. Um, that was another ripoff of Abnormal. We did that too, <laughs> where we, you know, we signed um, agreements, actually, for like no dollars with like eight or nine, I was more like eight, early design partners that ranged between, you know, 5,000 or 
500 to a couple thousand employees. That was kind of like the the spot. Um, and we've since, you know, we've since acquired customers that are smaller than that. But I think the core group of initial customers that we had was that. And then also, I think one of the things that helped us was our entire product intuition was built off of interviews with really large enterprises. And so we never really thought like, oh, from first principles, like how do you, and, and we also had like some founder intuition because we'd actually dealt with these business processes before. And so our bias was a lot more enterprise SaaS. We came from enterprise SaaS and we used initial interviews with really large bureaucratic organizations to inform what our initial intuition was. So the design partnership and kind of that initial intuition led to, to us starting with foundations as opposed to maybe starting with something that was more of a point solution. So the design partnership is interesting and you're not the first founder I've met who's, who's done that. Uh, I spoke to Alexa Grable who did that as well. And it's a little bit different cause they're like, she was selling to tech companies that are probably easier to get in touch with. You said you had design partnerships with these large bureaucratic enterprises. How did you as a founder of a, sorry, go ahead. At a, sorry to interrupt you at abnormal. We did, yeah. uh, Okay. Assembly, we had design partnerships with, I would say, like mid-market to small enterprise. Got it. Okay. Yeah. My, I, I was curious how you got it, even got in the door because design partnerships are kind of an investment from the other party, right? Like they have to like set aside time to jump on calls with you and like go over design reviews and give you feedback on your product before there is even a product. So like, how did you, were they just excited about that you were even building a thing for it? Or like, did you have to sell them on what you were building to get them involved? Yeah. So I um, will answer this from the abnormal perspective because I feel like that's more applicable to your question, which is like, how do you get enterprises involved? Well, one thing that was really helpful at abnormal was um, Greylock did our seed (laughs) and um, they Mm. have like a CISO, CIO, like consortium. And um, so it was easy to get like one or two. And then once you had one or two, it was easier to get another collection of of customers. Um, I think that is hard, though. And I think also if you're a founder that's trying to do it that way, which is probably what I do if I started a company again, uh, for what it's worth, is definitely the the design partnership method. Um, I would start with pain because you don't actually know what the form and function of your product is going to look like yet. Right. So you want to just interview um, a potential buyer and say, you know, it sounds like based on what I've understood that this is a thing that exists. Can you tell me what the thing, you know, what resonates with you most? And once you start with pain and kind of align on pain and get them excited about that, that really works. I also think that there are a lot of enterprise buyers out there that have opinions about how products should work and want to be part of something exciting, mm-hmm. um, but don't have an opportunity to do that in their day-to-day job. And so it is also easy to kind of play on that. It is kind of fun to work on a product together, um, be creative, think about things. And if you can give someone kind of a fun, intellectually re- rewarding experience in a biweekly call, that also could be good enough. Um, where I've seen design partnerships go off the rails is if the product, the partnership isn't structured by the startup or if they kind of let the buyer drive the car, (laughs) like the buyer's not actually looking to do that. You should be the one that imposes structure. That's also true by the way of proofs of value, um, and free trials. You, you want to be the one that kind of is like driving the, the thing forward, sets up the value, et cetera. And I also think it's useful at the beginning of a design partnership to, um, force someone to sign something, even if it's just an intellectual property agreement or like an NDA or something like that, um, for no money. 
and to establish success criteria, not just for the design partnership, but also for what you're trying to build over time and be like very, very proactively communicative about that, um, then that tends to work really well. Got it. Those are super tactical things there. That's really helpful. So I imagine assemble takes up a big chunk of your days, but what are you doing outside of assemble nowadays? How, how does Lisa enjoy spending time outside of work? Um, I just do assemble actually. <laughs> That's also like another problem with, um, starting a company with your best friend is you just like chat all the time and all you want to talk about yeah. is calm. Um, but other than that, I don't know. I do a lot of Pilates. I normally read a lot, but I don't, I haven't been reading as much. I, I instead I do audibles and podcasts. Mm, yeah. Mm. That actually, I know we're coming up on time, so that's a great, uh, transition into some of the closing questions. Um, so we'll go through some rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap it up. Sounds good. So you mentioned that you're listening to a lot of audible now. Um, any books you'd recommend or what are you re listening to now? Um, two of the best books I've read recently are Ryan Halliday's, uh, courage and discipline, um, which are, I think he's kind of like a, the daily stoic podcast guy. I, I don't actually listen to yeah. his podcast, but I really, really enjoyed both books. Awesome. I didn't realize he, he came out with new books. He's always publishing something. All right. Yeah. What's one opinion you have about business that you think people would disagree with? Mm. Oh, I'm sure I have a lot of opinions, but I mean, maybe one of them is that I'm not a big business book person and I don't know that I like fully believe in executive coaches. Um, but mm -hmm. I do think that people should be coachable and seek learning all the time. So probably like my best business advice comes from like just other types of books I read or biographies or podcasts or listening to other founders talk about their journey. Um, and executive coaching is kind of the same thing where like, I, I've never actually used an executive coach, but I have a, a close collection. So maybe I shouldn't say that it's dumb. Maybe it's, it is good, but I, I do have like a close, um, a close group of people that uh, are very close friends of mine that have started businesses or not just started businesses, but then been like the early growth leader, the early finance leader, the early whatever. And so it's just kind of naturally happened that way. And that's where all my best advice comes from. My, my fiance actually runs a company too. So, um, got it. So it's, yeah. it's not that it's not that you don't have a coach. It's just, they're your friends. So you wouldn't just like call them your coach. Yeah. And I also like, I, I really feel strongly that, um, Maybe this sounds antithetical to me saying like exact coaches are overrated, but uh, I really feel strongly that like business success is directly related to like over time in a consistent way is directly related to like how coachable you are and how good you are at taking feedback and how fast you're able to learn. Um, and I try to surround myself with people. Enrique, my co-founder, is incredible at this, who are really opening open to learning and like actively cultivate and try to maintain this sense of like humility and day one attitude. So maybe this is related to what you just shared, but what's one impactful piece of advice you've been given? Okay. I saw that on the podcast thing, but I didn't <laughs> remember. Um, well, something I was thinking about this morning that I saw on Twitter was, um, a farm metaphor, which of course I love. Um, which is that like, uh, I think that the, the slogan, which I've never heard a farmer actually say for what it's worth, people on Twitter, um, is that the, uh, the best, um, the best from fertilizer is a farmer's shadow, meaning farmer has to actually be watching over things. And that actually is consistent with how a lot of farming is, you know, things are just going to get screwed up if you start phoning it in, which is why, um, 
probably why a lot of, of high functioning farms today are still family businesses. So it's just a very all in mentality. But um, I do think that that actually is true um, of early stage companies where like, even if you're not the best person to do something or you don't feel like you have domain expertise or whatever, you still can't phone it in. You still can't delegate work. You still can't act like the next executive hire is going to handle this and it's going to solve all my problems and I can ignore it. Unfortunately, there are no shortcuts. I've never heard that one before, but that's a good one. You're, you sure farmers don't say that? I know a lot of farmers and I've heard that, but maybe they do. Yeah, I love it. Well, last question here is where can people find you on the internet? What's the best place to reach you? Uh, maybe LinkedIn. Classic. More and more. It's, it's fascinating. LinkedIn. LinkedIn's now the platform to connect now. Like no one really says Twitter anymore. <laughs> I just, I'm just like bad at Twitter. Like I just don't understand Twitter. It's whatever. Like I just, I just need to lean into my enterprise SaaS attitude. Yeah. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Like whatever we can, I'll send you my Calendly. Awesome. Well, Lisa, it was a pleasure to have you on a show. Thanks for making the time. Cool. Thanks for having me.